My friend's name is Don Robinson. And it was several years ago that uh, Don invited me to lunch. And as we sat in a Mexican restaurant and had a wonderful time, as we always did, we neared the end of our time together. And he said, now, what I'm about to say to you uh, would make my wife very upset with me. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. And with piercing eyes and years of experience in the Christian life, he said to me, last Sunday, while you were preaching the word of God, you looked at the clock. I don't ever want to see you look at the clock again while you're preaching God's word. Don Robinson went to be with the Lord last week, dear friend. And the last thing he said to me as I had a chance to talk to him last Tuesday was this. Keep preaching the word. Keep preaching the word. And so today, I don't dare look at the clock. <laughs> or do I ever dare look at the clock for the rest of my life and ministry. And... I must continue uh, to preach the word. So this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the 10th chapter of John's gospel. John chapter 10. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6 uttered these words that we know very well. He said, enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It should come as no surprise when I say that the Jews in John chapter 10 are in fact on the broad path. That is to say... The Jews that are in this dialogue with Jesus in this particular portion of Scripture are on the path of destruction. As they continually question the, the claims of, de, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, as they question the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as they question the identity of Jesus. Many people in our culture are on that similar path, are they not? People who defiantly oppose the Lord Jesus. People who stubbornly resist the Lord Jesus. They reject His Word. They reject His Lordship. They reject His sovereignty. And they refuse to bow down to the kingly authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we have a unique opportunity to watch and gaze at a dialogue between Jesus and these unbelieving Jews. If you're a baseball fan, you might have put, this, put it this way. This morning, we have a box seat. We have the treasured box seats, if you will, to get an inside look into a question that I think will fascinate you. The question goes something like this. Why do some people believe? And why do some people refuse to believe? At the end of the day, each of us will be faced with this pivotal question. What is your response to the Good Shepherd? What is your response to the Lord Jesus Christ? And the title of the message this morning is Reasons for Faith. 
Reasons for faith. We read with me as we stand together in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again to cross the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Father, once again, as we open your word, we would ask that your spirit would be our instructor. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us in the path of truth, that you would help us to see this morning why some people believe why I believed, why many people in the sanctuary believed, and why some continue to persist in unbelief. God, I pray that our thoughts would be guided by Scripture. I pray that we would flee from the worldly wisdom of man. I pray that, pray that we would flee the, the so-called wisdom of philosophy or false theological frameworks. May we embrace the sola scriptura principle. May the Word of God be our highest authority. May we affirm the Word of God, surrender to the Word of God, rejoice in the Word of God. I pray that your people would leave this place today rejoicing, filled with enthusiasm, thankful for the gospel of grace. For those who continue to persist in unbelief, may today be the day of salvation. May you do a good work of grace in the heart of someone today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> no less than six times in this passage, 
do we find the word believe mentioned? The word believe. Of course, we understand very well that the word believe means to have faith. It means to have faith. It actually comes from a Greek word. That Greek word is the word pastuo. And pastuo means to think to be true. The term actually goes beyond what it means to think to be true. It actually implies trust. It means, Lord Jesus Christ, I turn to you. I believe in you. I rely on you. I trust you. I submit to you. I'm willing to obey you. In other words, pastuo means more than I believe two plus two equals four. It means I'm passionately for something or someone. In this case, passionately for the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him, believing in Him, relying on Him, submitting to Him, obeying Him. That word pastuo is really a hallmark word in the New Testament. It occurs all over the New Testament. Let me show you a few cases where it occurs. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we read that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, there's pastuo, believe the gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John chapter 4, verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. John chapter 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, that is to say, everyone who looks on Jesus and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This morning, if you were here and you have yet to believe, if you have yet to entrust yourself to a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, please heed the Word of God and realize that if you continue in your unbelief, if you persist in your stubborn rebellion, that one day you will face the wrath of Almighty God. John chapter 8, verse 24. You must believe or you will die in your sins. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we recall these very important words, and without faith... It is impossible to please Him. That is to say, without saving faith, without gospel belief, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. One thing is abundantly apparent 
as we explore this passage together. Some people believe, some people refuse to believe. And here is the question I want to pose this morning. With the prospect of eternal salvation on the table, with the prospect of the forgiveness of sins on the table, why do some people say yes and why do some people say no? With the prospect of enjoying heaven for all eternity, that's where my friend Don is today, or the prospect of eternal torments, why do some people say I believe and why do the others say no, no, no? I reject the living God. I reject the gospel. Exactly what is it that distinguishes the believing from the unbelieving? Why do you believe, but your mother doesn't believe? Why do you believe, but your best friend doesn't believe? What is it that sets you apart from your unbelieving friend? In Romans chapter 9, why did Jacob believe and Esau refused to believe? I want to frame the question like this. What, what are the defining marks of a person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, this question becomes very practical and very relevant and very important as the Jews in John chapter 10. They pose a question to Jesus. And I hope as we read the word of God together that in your mind's eye, you were scratching your head. I was scratching my bald head as I read these words. They have the audacity to ask Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How many of you were scratching your heads when we read those verses? Two of you. Let's, let's think about the gravity of this. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been sharing his identity. Now, for a season, that identity was, uh, it was hidden, if you will, is one time in the life of Jesus, he began to open up and become transparent and share who he was and what he was prepared to accomplish. He was passionately presenting who he was as the God-man. He is the God-man. And all throughout the Gospel of John, up to John chapter 10, we have seen that Jesus plainly reveals his identity. Yet these Jewish leaders say, Jesus, don't keep us in suspense. And I say to myself, are you kidding me? How can you be so slow? Why is it that you, you can't figure out that Jesus is the God-man who came to die on a wooden cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe? Now, refusing to believe in Jesus is nothing new. This is not a, uh, a uniquely Jewish problem. Jews and Gentiles all throughout redemptive history have been refusing to believe in Jesus Christ all the way back to the fall of man. But we've also seen the stubborn resistance to believe in Jesus in the Gospel of John. I want to take you on a small journey. I want to take you on a journey and show you some of the passages that we have already explored together. Hold your finger in John chapter 10 and go to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, beginning in verse 37, we read these words. 
Jesus said, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Is that clear? That's pretty clear. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Why? Because God the Father is spirit. God the Father is incorporeal. He is spirit. He does not have a body of flesh and bones. So you cannot see him. Verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For why? You do not believe the one whom he has sent. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 46 and 47 in the same chapter. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Look at John chapter 6, verse 36. John chapter 6, verse 36. Jesus says, but I said to you that you have seen me. Can you imagine actually gazing on the Son of Man? Actually, you you could check out his cool sandals, right? You, you would see what he wears. You could see the, the, the calluses on his hands because he was a carpenter. You could shake his hand. You could, you could slap him on the shoulder. You could give him a hug. And what happens here? You have seen me, yet you do not believe. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was illustrating a similar point. And I said, how many of you in the youth group, if you heard that Jesus was going to be at Walmart tomorrow at 10 o'clock, how many of you would be there? Oh, lots of hands would go up. And I would say, I, I beg to differ. Because there would be something on TV. There would be, there would be a, uh, some kind of a ball game. There would be some kind of a social event that would crowd out the opportunity to actually gaze on the Son of Man. And if you actually went to see the Son of Man, you would see Him, but... As we are witnessing in the Gospel of John, many would continue to persist in stubborn unbelief. Look at John chapter 6, verse uh, 64. John chapter 6, verse 64. But there are some of you, once again, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. John chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. John chapter 8, verse 24. I told you, Jesus said, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe, as we saw earlier, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Look at John chapter 8, verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. I want you to tuck that away. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Then bump forward to John chapter 9, verse 18. We read that the Jews did not believe That he had been blind. This is the man who Jesus healed and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. We learned about that several weeks ago. And so in John chapter 10, to sum this up, the stubborn unbelief of these Jewish leaders continues. I want you to gaze now at John chapter 10, 
John chapter 10, verse 26. In John chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus utters some words that I'm sure shocked these Jewish leaders to the very core. He says, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so Jesus teaching here, you see, rocked their theological world. His teaching shocks them. His teaching, I believe, has the power to change your life today. And so this morning, as we look at 20 verses, this is a little unusual for me, 20 verses. I would prefer to teach two verses. So here we have this large unit of thought. I want to take you on a journey through John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. But this journey will be something like... When an out-of-town guest comes to visit you here in Whatcom County, and they've never been to Seattle before. I don't know about you, but I love to take out-of-town guests to Seattle who have never been to Seattle before. And let's say on this particular day, you have a limited amount of time, and they want to see as much as humanly possible, right? And so you begin your, your journey in North Seattle and, and over in the, the U District, perhaps, and you, you show them the University of Washington, and they, they see the, the remodeled uh, football stadium where the Huskies will win a national championship this year. Uh, then you move, <laughs> you, you move over to Lake Union, and you, you take a, a quick walk, uh, around a portion of Lake Union. And then they want to see Seattle Pacific University. And so you go to the top of the hill and you wander the campus really quickly. You explore Queen Anne Hill. You go down the hill. You hang out in Seattle Center. Just, just, just for a moment, you show them the Space Needle. You kind of show them the sights. You wander down through downtown. And now it's getting, it's getting towards the, the beginning of the afternoon. You don't, you don't have much time left. Well, anyone that comes to Seattle wants to see where the greatest baseball team in the world plays, right? You knew that was coming. And so they have to see the safe. They have to see the clink. You know what happens at the clink. That's where the greatest football team in the world plays. And so now your journey is almost complete, but you just, you just scratch the surface. You're, just, you're gazing at these places. But here's what they want to do. They want to go to the aquarium. All these other places you just said, here's Husky Stadium, here's the Clink, here's Safeco Field, here's all the stores, here's all the sky, the, the, the huge buildings. But they want to spend the time at the aquarium. They want to take the rest of the afternoon to, to look at the beautiful fish. They want to read the exhibits as me Stands, come on, get him right. They want to see everything they can see. They want to. They want to get their money's worth at the aquarium. That's what we're going to do today in this passage. We don't have the time to comprehensively look at all of these twenty verses and and exhaust the teaching of God's word. And so, I want to direct your attention to verses twenty six to twenty nine, which will serve as our aquarium. We are going to look at the fish, if you will. We're going to read the exhibits, if you will. We're going to learn all we can in verses 26 to 29. And once again, the question I want to pose is, what are the defining marks of a person who believes in Jesus? This is what I like to call reasons for faith. 
And in this unit of thought, there are at least six reasons of faith that appear here. What is it that sets apart the believing person from the unbelieving person? And I would even challenge you to do this in your mind's eye, or even as you jot down a few things on a piece of paper, write down or think of what is it that sets me apart from my unbelieving family member? The first one may shock you. In fact, all six of them may shock you. But as the people of God, we submit to the word of God. We surrender afresh to the word of God. And so here is the first reason for faith. Jesus says it this way. The first reason people believe is that they are part of God's flock. The first reason people believe is because they are part of God's flock. He says in verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. Now, don't miss the reason why unbelievers fail to believe in Jesus. By his own admission, Jesus says they don't believe Because they are not a part of the flock. Now hear this. Their lack of belief, their lack of saving faith has nothing to do with their religious background. Their lack of faith has nothing to do with their intellect. Their lack of saving faith has nothing to do with their abilities, you see. They do not believe, Jesus says, why? They're not a part of the flock of God. Now, such an admission provides us with what I believe is a positive clue why some people actually believe. That is to say, the reasons that some people believe in Jesus is why? They are part of God's flock. Now, the universalist, that is the person who believes that Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl all around the globe will go to heaven. They teach that everyone is a member of God's flock. We have universalists in Whatcom County. We have universalists in American culture who believe everyone goes to heaven. Now, someone who is completely different than a universalist is what's called an Arminian. The Arminian teaches that all people have the ability... To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus disagrees with both the Universalist and the Arminian. He teaches this. Only some people are members of God's flock. Now, he makes reference to this in John chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. Read it with me. Just as the Father knows me... And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so you see, the the first reason for faith is that believers, by Jesus' own admission, are part of the flock of God. The second mark of the people of God, or people who believe, explains the reasons, the rationale why they become a part of God's flock. Now, this second reason for faith is a controversial reason. And I want to argue this morning, it should not be controversial because we already heard three separate passages from Jason that I appreciated that you read so much, Jason, that points to this theological reality. The second reason for belief is that they are predestined by God. 
They are predestined by God. That is to say, the flock of God is determined in eternity past. Now, I want to share with you in the next few minutes five important truths or realities that concern the doctrine of election. Notice most basically that election is focused on individual people. Election is focused on individual people. The word to elect means to to pick or to choose. It means to pick or to choose. I remember uh, Pastor Wayne, who I worked with over 11 years in LaGrande, uh, he took one of his boys, who actually pastors here in Whatcom County, he took Jeremy to, uh, to select a dog out of a group, uh, out of a litter. And he ended up pointing to one particular dog. He elected that particular dog. And the rest stayed with, with Mama. So to elect means to pick out or to choose. Now, Tom Junkmas, my friend Tom, last Veritas, in the spring Veritas quarter, taught a class, a very important class, on a section of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. I want to quote from that Baptist Confession of Faith. Because there is a a widespread notion that uh, conservative people or Baptist people Uh, either don't believe in predestination or should never have believed in predestination, and nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to the confession. Quote, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some people and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Others are left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of of his glorious grace. You recall those words in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the words of the Lord, and as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. That is to say, the one whom the ones whom God the Father elected in eternity past, they believed, they became members of God's flock. Notice the second truth about predestination, that election took place when? Election takes place in eternity past, in eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. I've had the opportunity to share this verse with literally dozens and dozens of people over the years. Many times I will hear these words. I've never seen that verse before. If you're numbered among the one who says, I've never seen it before, my prayer for you this morning, you would rejoice in this truth. You would celebrate this truth as Paul the Apostle said that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When did you receive grace if you were a believer? 
you receive grace before the ages began. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That is to say, he has caused us to be regenerated through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The third facet of election is an important one, and that is that election is a sovereign act of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 16 and 17 say, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Fourth, I want you to see that election is unconditional. Election is unconditional. For Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, it's almost, Jason, it's almost as if you kind of did a a pre-sermon sermon. Because we heard all these verses, which I appreciate so much. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, We've seen these different facets of the doctrine of election. Now, I want you to to gaze at this final one, and it is a very practical one, an intensely practical one. That is, wherever you are in the theological landscape today, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist or don't know where you stand, the doctrine of election should cause you to rejoice. It should cause you to rejoice. Why? Because apart from election, apart from election, I would never believe. Apart from election, you would never believe. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, he says. Election should cause us to rejoice. I remember reading a quote in what has become one of the most influential books I have ever read. This is where I kind of see the pens come out. The Pleasures of God by John Piper. It was his second book. It's a book that probably didn't receive as much uh, attention as it should have. But I remember over 20 years ago, if I remember correctly, reading this quote It blew me away, and it continues to blow me away to this day. He says this, God elects, predestines, and secures for one great ultimate purpose, that the glory of his grace might be praised forever with white-hot affection. This is why God delights in election. It is the great first work of free grace that takes away the final refuge of human self-reliance and casts man on the unshakable rock of covenant love. I've heard preachers put it this way. You don't have to like the doctrine of election, but you do have to believe it. And I couldn't disagree anymore. You do have to like the doctrine of election. We must embrace it. We must delight in it. We must rejoice. For if God didn't elect Dave Steele, I would go to hell for all eternity. And so we say this to the doctrine of election. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from all my sin. 
We've seen the first reason for belief that believers are part of God's flock. We've seen that they are predestined to believe. Number three, I want you to see that they are also predisposed to listen to God. They are predisposed to listen to God. Look at verse 27. Jesus says it this way, My sheep hear my voice. Now the sheep heed the call of their shepherd. This comes from the word akuo. We've talked about this word. Akuo, we say, we walk into a concert hall and we say, this is what I always say when I go to a good concert hall. Dude, check out the acoustics, right? What is good acoustics? It means the sound is amazing. I can hear things I've never heard before. So here Jesus says, the sheep akuo, they hear the call of their shepherd. Now, here's what the word means. It means more than, Carl, I hear you. It means more than I hear you. It means I hear, I listen, I understand, and I am committed to obedience. That is a kuo. And so notice again, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. We have a passion to listen and understand and pay attention and to obey the good shepherd. Now I want you to see that this is not a self-initiated hearing. This is prompted by God who sovereignly opens up the ear gate of all of God's elect so that they are divinely enabled to hear and believe. This is the same God who, in 1974, softened my stony heart. This is the same God who opened my, my, my blind eyes to the beauty of the gospel. This is the same God who opened my ears to the wonder of the gospel, giving me the ability to believe and giving all the elect the ability to believe. Many times we have looked at Acts chapter 28, verse 28, at the end of the book of Acts. It's one of the greatest mission passages I can think of. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Not they might listen, or they'll think about listening, but they will listen. Why? Because all those whom God has chosen will most certainly listen. And I would submit this to you, that because of this truth, this should embolden your evangelism. If you are confident that it is a sovereign God who unplugs the ears of His elect, that means that you are energized to share the gospel. Now, some of you, if you were honest, you would say, I share the gospel and all they do is resist and I get discouraged and and I go back to the drawing board and I I call my pastor and I ask, what's another good book I can read on evangelism? What are some good apologetics books? I've read all of the works of Tim Keller. I read C.S. Lewis. I read Robbie Zacharias. I read all these great people. But my friends continue to resist and rebel and stubbornly oppose the living God until one day you share the gospel with someone and they believe and you say to yourself, that's the easiest thing I've ever done. That's the easiest thing I've ever done. Why? Because you faithfully present the gospel and a sovereign God softens the heart and unplugs the ears and opens the eyes, giving his elect the ability to believe. 
And so we should be prompted to proclaim the gospel, knowing that all those whom God chose in eternity past will listen. Now, here's a, here's a little pastoral tidbit I'll share with you that's been encouraging to me. You can't screw it up. You can't mess it up. I, I don't know how many times as a young man I would share the gospel and I'd walk away from unbelievers who continue to stubbornly resist the gospel. And I'm like, man, I messed it up again. I didn't say this. I didn't read this verse. I didn't say that verse. And I forgot to quote Ravi Zacharias. If I just did that, wait a minute. We can't mess it up. Why? Because the burden is not with us. The burden is upon the living God who promises to save his people. Notice the fourth reason for belief, which strangely enough, occurs in verse 27 as well. Another reason for belief is that they are passionately loved by God. Look at it with me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Be careful not to skip over this amazing reality. The Greek word here is gnosko, which means and implies intimate relationship. That is to say, from all eternity, God has loved his sheep. You remember well the words of Romans chapter 5, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we are enemies of God, God loved us passionately. Now remember that the love of God is not arbitrary. This is one of the chief objections I hear to the doctrine of election. It's, it's arbitrary. Why does God choose this woman and reject that man? Why does he pick one person and pass over another? Well, election's not arbitrary. The reason we know that is this. In Ephesians 1, 4-6, we read that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice, in love, he predestinated us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now think about this together. In eternity past, God loved you. I don't care what the psychologists say. I don't care what the self-help gurus say. At this point, they have nothing to offer us. Because the sovereign, triune, omnipotent, everlasting, merciful God set his affection on, on you. If you were numbered among the elect, he set his affection on you if you were called to be a sheep. Well, there's a fifth reason for belief, and it also occurs in verse 27. You say, we're really hanging out a long time in the aquarium. That's right. That's why we didn't stay long at Husky Stadium. Verse 27, they are also prompted to follow God. Look at 27 again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. Comes from a word that means to to come along as a follower. It means to be a disciple. In Luke 5, 27, after this, he went out and Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Same word. Luke 9.23 said to all of them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and 
follow me. Luke 9.59, to another he said, follow me, follow me. Now the implications of following the Lord Jesus Christ are vast and wide. It's another sermon all on its own. But to follow the Lord Jesus Christ means that we walk with Jesus. When we commit ourselves to following Jesus, it means that we learn from Jesus. Never again do we say, I'm done learning about the Christian faith. Rather, like my friend Don, who went to the end of his life reading as often as he could a Spurgeon sermon before he went to bed at night. You say, ah, now I know why you're friends with him. He was a lifelong learner. The implications of following Jesus means that we worship Jesus. We submit to Jesus. It means that we obey Jesus. And with words as gracious and, and, and gentle as I can utter, I must say this. If you are unwilling to walk with Jesus, if you are unwilling to learn from Jesus and worship Jesus and submit to Jesus and obey Jesus, you will never be his disciple. There is no such thing as a disciple who says, Jesus, I resist you. Jesus, I oppose you. Jesus, I have no desire to learn from you. Jesus, I'm going to do it with Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way. That's the mark of someone who is not yet a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because disciples are prompted to follow God and obey God. Well, there's a final thing that occurs in this passage as we look at the reasons for belief. The final one is this, and it's a biggie. And that is that they are preserved by God. Would you look at verse 28 with me? Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I want to summarize verse 28 by saying this, that God promises to preserve the salvation of his sheep. He promises to preserve the salvation of his people. Many of you are familiar with Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer said that unconditional security teaches that the God who chose his people unto eternal life will lose none. They who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will assuredly be saved. This morning, I want to close by offering up four statements that help to undergird this very important reality of what theologians refer to as perseverance of the saints. And they occur in these remaining verses that we're exploring in the so-called aquarium. Here's the first statement. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Now, remember when Jesus says that he gave you eternal life, that this is a divine gift. It would be like the, the governor of a state giving you a gift. I remember when I was about six years old, I was in the state of Nebraska, and a pastor gave me a putter. I don't know why, I don't know why, a put, other than it's one of the greatest games of all human history, right? But I remember thinking, why did he give me a putter? That... I mean, it still doesn't work, <laughs> but he gave me a putter, and it was such a special gift. Now, that's just a man. That's, that's a pastor. Now, Jesus says, I give another kind of a gift. 
I give eternal life. This is a gift that can never be revoked. This is a gift that will never perish, spoil, or fade, so says the Apostle Peter. Peter goes, goes on to say, it's a gift that is guarded by the very power of God. It is a gift that is indestructible. It is a gift given by a self-existent, eternal, omnipotent God. Yet many people in, evangel- in the evangelical world say, I can lose my salvation. I can lose my salvation. My challenge to anyone who denies this very important doctrine is this. If one of God's elect can be lost eternally, that is to say, if one of the sheep can lose their salvation, what do you do with the promises of God? The answer is this. You either, at the very best, you accuse Jesus of misspeaking. That's the very best option. The very worst is you accuse God of lying. Jesus says this. All those who receive the the gift of eternal life that I give will never perish. They will never be lost. But there's another statement that undergirds this theological reality. And that is that they will never perish. You see it in verse 28. Number one, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. The word perish means to die. It means to to be destroyed. It means to be lost. It's the same word that occurs in John chapter 3, verse 16. We all know John chapter 3, verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not, help me, perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says, they will never perish. Who is it who says this? Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, the one who has never lied, the one who doesn't have the ability to lie, the one who is filled with truth. He says this, they will never perish. I want you to see a third theological reality that also occurs in verse 28. Jesus says, says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. We've all seen children do this, right? One child was holding the bear. The other child says to himself, I must have the bear. (laughs) We've all seen it a hundred times. And so the child who says, I must have the bear, does what? Help me. Snatches it. And now it belongs to him. It's his bear because he snatched it. Jesus says that can never happen. The word snatch means to take away. It means to seize or to attack or to plunder. And so the, the bear story is a little trite, right? It's more than just taking it from your pal. It means to plunder. It means to seize. It means to take away. And so that explanation helps us understand the promises of Jesus at this point. Jesus makes a categorical statement. No one, no one can attack or plunder the one whom Jesus grants eternal life. Romans chapter 8 says it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, notice the promise of God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, yet, that is not in the text, yet, scores of believers all around the world put it this way, I have been given sufficient free will to walk away from the salvation that Jesus gave me. And my very simple response to that belief is, where is that? assertion found in the word of God. It is not found anywhere in the pages of sacred scripture. Finally, Jesus says one more thing in verse 29. He says, my father who has given them to me. We'll look at this amazing reality when we approach John chapter 17. My father who has given them to me, that is the elect, that is the sheep, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of The Father's hand. So first Jesus says, you can't snatch the elect out of my hands. Now he says, you also can't snatch the elect out of my Father's hands. And so here's what we find. God the Father has given the elect as a love gift to the Son. All that the Father chose in eternity past, he has given to the Son. And Jesus reiterates, no one, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. And you know by this point, Spurgeon had this witty way of pounding home the reality of theological truth. He said it like this. A man on a ship may be knocked down on the deck by the waves over and over again, but he is never washed overboard. That is to say, you may fail in the Christian life. We sang about that. You may struggle in the Christian life. You may be knocked down in the Christian life, but you will never be washed overboard. And so in this unit of thought in John chapter 10, Jesus sets forth six defining marks of a person who believes in Jesus. And that faith looks like this as we explore the reasons to believe. That we are part of God's flock. That we are predestined by God. We are predisposed to listen to God. We are passionately loved by God in eternity past. And now we are prompted to follow God. And finally, we are preserved by a holy God. As we close, I want to have you look with me at verse 31. Move out of the arena of the aquarium for a minute. In verse 31, something interesting happens. We have explored this amazing truth from Scripture. And Jesus taught it as, as plain as he could. How do the Jews respond to these reasons to believe? Verse 31. They picked up stones. And I believe the key verse at this point is the word again. They picked up stones again to stone him. When Jesus spoke of his eternal existence, you remember in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, before Abraham, I am. That is, I have have existed from all eternity. I exist today, and I will exist 
for all eternity, what did the Jews do? They picked up rocks to stone him, to kill him. And so as I think about these Jewish unbelievers, I thought about the propensity that many people have in our culture to refuse to believe Jesus. The Jews, as do we, resist learning the truth about Jesus. We are quick to condemn Jesus. In the first century, the Jews were quick to kill Jesus. That was their aim. The question today is, where do you stand? How do you respond to Jesus' message that concern the reason for faith? How should Jesus' teaching strike you in the deepest cavern of your soul? I want to suggest three points of application this morning. The first is this. You should be humbled. You should be humbled. What did the Jews do? They saw the six points. They bent down to pick up stones to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. Last night, I went out in our backyard to kind of think through the sermon and pray through the sermon. And I looked up. How many of you saw the stars last night? Unbelievable. And the first thing I saw as I gazed at the stars was the Big Dipper. I saw that Big Dipper as it hung prominently in the sky. And then I looked around, and as I shared with Nathan, I said, I don't know the names of any of the other stars, but I do know, the, I, I do know that constellation. I know the Big Dipper. But look at the millions and millions and millions and millions of stars that Jesus created. And he knows the name of every one of them. I thought to myself, he chose me? And then I personalized it. You chose me? You're the one who created those beautiful stars. And so when we explore the reasons for belief, the first thing that should strike us is we should be humbled. The only reason that we are members of God's flock is that he chose us. Number two, you should marvel at the grace of God in Christ. You know, I have not yet met a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who physically picked up a stone and went to look for the Lord Jesus Christ to stone him. But I have met scores and scores of people throughout my almost 25 years of ministry who when they see the reasons for belief, they say, I don't like that. And I especially don't like the second one. I don't like predestination. As I said earlier, it's not about liking it. It's about loving it and embracing it because this is God's word. This is God's truth. Therefore, instead of reacting against the truth, my challenge as your pastor is to respond to the truth, to delight in the truth. Because there is nothing that God saw in you. There is nothing that God saw in me when he chose us. He chose us according to the purpose of his will. And so stand amazed that in all your sin, God passionately loved you. When you see the stars tonight, I would urge you to utter the song of the great songwriter. Amazing love. How could it be that he loved me. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. 
When you place yourself in a posture of humility and marvel at the grace of God in Christ, you will begin to see incremental changes in your life. You will begin to do what the biblical writers refer to as experiencing sanctification. You will be progressively transformed into the image of your Savior. Your worldview will begin to be fundamentally altered. There's a final point, and we'll close. And that is probably the most important point I could make this morning. And that is that if you have not yet believed, then you must believe. You know, the, the admonition to believe in the New Testament, it is indeed an invitation, but it is also an imperative. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Today is the day to place faith in the Son of God who died on a cross to reconcile you to God, to redeem you from your sin, to forgive you of all your sins and enter into a right relationship with the God of the universe. I want you to notice verse 42. The concluding words of John chapter 10 are revealing. Here we have seen the the rampant unbelief of these Jewish leaders and we close the chapter with these words. And... Many believed in him there. People who believe in Jesus are part of God's flock, predestined by God, predisposed to listen to God, passionately loved by God, prompted to follow God, and preserved by God. I would ask you this final question. Are you on the narrow path? Are you on the narrow path that John Bunyan poignantly tells us will lead to the celestial city? Or are you on that broad road that will lead to destruction? The choice is yours. I urge you to make it today. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for all that we have been learning in John 10. And gazing at the stars last night, I still am astounded that you would choose me. I'm astounded that you would, choose, you, you, you would choose anyone. Thank you, God, for not only choosing us, but for, for loving us eternally. Thank you for opening our ears to the truth of the gospel, for prompting us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for preserving that salvation that was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now today, God, my, <coughs> my prayer is that we would not resist your truth, but we would rejoice in your truth. That when we struggle, we would take our struggle to the Lord Jesus. That we would share our struggle and that we would receive mercy and help in our time of need. And that day by day that our, our battles would slide away. That we would learn to daily rejoice in the truth of your word. So I pray that you would encourage this your people today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.